0: Do you believe Donovan Mitchell is leaving the snowy mountains of Salt Lake City and he's headed to the land of progress and prosperity. If anyone's wondering where that is, well, it's Cleveland. Not quite sure that's how I would describe Cleveland, but it's a real thing. I looked it up. And this is the All Bets Are On podcast. I am Kate Constable. A huge blockbuster trade went down yesterday, obviously, between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Utah Jazz. Jazz sending Donovan Mitchell to Cleveland for a number of players and assets. So we'll jump into that trade early on in the podcast, talk about the implications both for Cleveland and Utah, but also the New York Knicks who were in the mix for a while. The WNBA playoffs also still going strong. Game three is on Sunday as the series goes back to both Seattle and Connecticut for that game three. So we'll discuss that. Both of those series are tied up. I'll give out my best bets and we'll move on. So to start, Donovan Mitchell is now a Cleveland Cavalier. The Jazz sent Mitchell to the Cavs for Laurie Markkinen, Ochai Abaji, Colin Sexton, three first-round picks. That's in 2025, 27, and 29. All of those unprotected. And then two pick swaps in 2026 and 28. So, if you take a look at what's happening here, Cavs just got a little bit better, and the Jazz, they're in full rebuild mode, as we knew was going to happen this offseason when they got rid of Rudy Gobert. They're kind of clean in-house. Their two all-stars are now gone, and they have a ton of picks and pick swaps and just assets going forward to try and start this rebuild. This is kind of like Oklahoma city 2.0 uh, with, with what's happening in Utah right now. Oftentimes when a big trade like this goes down, everyone wants to talk about the winners and the losers of the trade. So let's do it winners. I, I think the Cavs and the jazz both won in this one. They both got exactly what they wanted. The jazz, they want to rebuild. They want to start over and they got a bunch of assets to do so. And the Cavs, they just got a whole lot better. Getting rid of Lori Markkinen, Colin Sexton, Ochai Abaji. I'm not sure Abaji really means a whole lot to the Cleveland Cavaliers right now. He's still a young player. Lori Markkinen is a solid player. He was a part of the Cavs' uh, big three headed monster of their seven footers their rim protectors, which was a huge part of their game last season, but I'm not sure Markkanen is, is a player that you can really build a team around, so I have no problem with the Cavs getting rid of him. And then Colin Sexton, solid player. He can score. That's really important, but it seemed that since he's been in the league, he's had some locker room issues with the team. He has been injured. As soon as he got injured last season, that's kind of when the Cavs started to take off and really thrive. So I don't hate them getting rid of Colin Sexton either because, yeah, he's a scorer, but you're bringing in Donovan Mitchell, who's also a scorer. And with the momentum that the Cavs have from last season, they surpassed their uh, – they doubled their win total, actually. 44 wins last year. They were one of the Cinderella stories, the feel-good stories of the season last year with with uh, all the success they had. Unfortunately, some injuries down the stretch kind of derailed their season, and they lost to the Hawks in the playing game. But with Donovan Mitchell on your roster this year, the playoffs are well in reach for the Cleveland Cavaliers. I mean, you're looking at a starting lineup of Mitchell – Darius Garland, who's a phenomenal young player, Evan Mobley, Jarrett Allen, uh, possibly Isaac Okoro. I think he'll have that starting spot. Then you've also got Karis LeVert on your roster. You've got Kevin Love. And bringing in Donovan Mitchell really makes you a contender for years to come. He has three years left on his contract. And those players I just spoke of, all very young players. Garland's 23. Allen is 24. Mobley just turned 21. Uh, Donovan Mitchell himself, he's turning twenty-six this month. So he's still even though he's been in the league for what seems like a while, he's still very young. And Isaac Okoru is turns twenty-two in January. So this trade guarantees you at least three years of contention with this core that's young, that's gonna grow and I mean, at the very least, gain a ton of experience over these next few seasons to hopefully put this team and this franchise in a uh, spot to get back to the playoffs for the first time since LeBron James left. Now, does this mean they're automatically in the playoffs this year? No, not necessarily, because if you look at the East, the East is absolutely stacked, and it's it's only gotten better this offseason, I think. The Sixers got better. I mean, they have um, Joel Embiid, obviously, and, and James Harden, but they just got P.J. Tucker, which improves their defense a little. The Hawks got DeJounte Murray this offseason. He's paired in the backcourt with Trey Young. Raptors are always kind of a dangerous team. I'm, 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 they're kind of on the playoff bubble, but you never know what you're going to get from the Raptors, and it, typically they're a sneaky a sneaky team. The Nets, KD, Kyrie, Ben Simmons, I mean, their roster's similar to last year, but it's much better starting this season than they ended last year with all the drama and the Ben Simmons stuff. And, and apparently KD is back in and buying into this team, and any team that he and Kyrie are on is a contender for sure. Bucks have Giannis. Um, a lot of their postseason woes last year was because Chris Middleton was out and injured. So they're always going to be a contender as long as you have Giannis on your team. Then Miami. I mean, they lost PJ Tucker, but other than that, they didn't lose a whole lot this season and or this off And they were the number one team last year. So you have a stacked East. Add the Cavs in there, and it's going to be a very fun um, playoff run towards the end of the season because you're going to have so many teams in the mix this year. Now, what does this do for the Utah Jazz? They're in full rebuild mode. They got rid of Rudy Gobert earlier this offseason, sent him to the Minnesota Timberwolves in a huge trade, got a ton of assets, uh, and then obviously Donovan Mitchell sent their other all-star to Cleveland. So with those two all-stars gone, this is what the Jazz got back. They got Colin Sexton, Laurie Markkinen, Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, Talon Horton-Tucker, and Stanley Johnson now because they the Jazz acquired Pat Bev through the Minnesota trade traded him to the Lakers for THT and Stanley Johnson. You have Ochai Abaji, Walker Kessler, Leandro Balmaro, three unprotected first round picks from Minnesota, three unprotected first round picks from Cleveland, one 2029 top 5 protected pick from Minnesota, two first round pick swaps from Minnesota and two first round pick swaps from Cleveland. I mean, that's just almost too much to read. I shouldn't have read all that. I'm sure no one followed any of what I just said there. But to summarize, I mean, that's that's a lot of picks, a lot of assets. And they could ultimately be trading uh, Jordan Clarkson, Boan Bogdanovich, Mike Conley, some of those... Um, Well, I guess Bogdanovich and Conley are more veteran players. Jordan Clarkson's a little bit younger, but they have those players to trade and and gather more assets. They also could be dealing Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, two players they got from the Gobert trade. So they have all sorts of things to work with, and they're setting themselves up to be kind of like an Oklahoma City Thunder team that's in a massive rebuild and has all of these assets and picks that they're able to use going forward to try and land a star or a top lottery pick in the near future. And honestly, based on how the Jazz ended last season, this is the right thing to do for this team right now. Danny Ainge, the president of basketball operations, newer to the organization within the last year, but he knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, the Jazz had a first-round exit last year, lost to the Dallas Mavericks. Their stars were... allegedly arguing throughout the season. Maybe Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell didn't enjoy playing together. Head coach Quinn Snyder decided not to stay and renew his contract, so he's gone. They have a new uh, head coach in Will Hardy who came over from the Celtics. This is his first year as a head coach, although he's been a very valuable assistant coach for the Boston Celtics and earlier grew in San Antonio Spurs, started his career there under Greg Popovich. So, He's a very smart basketball mind coming in here, but still his very first season as a head coach, so you wonder how that's going to go. But with Danny Ainge as your president of basketball operations, he knows what he's doing here. He did the same thing in Boston, took them through a rebuild, got a bunch of uh, picks, assets, and that basically turned into acquiring Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum through the draft. So that's what he's hoping to do uh, here in Utah, although it's going to be A rough season for jazz fans for the next few years, I think. Now, that being said, it's been a rough few decades for the New York Knicks, who are also in this mix. Knicks fans are all up in arms on social media, on Twitter, over their lack of aggressiveness in pursuing Donovan Mitchell. And I'm not sure acquiring Donovan Mitchell would have been the right move for them. I mean, they had plenty of assets that they could have traded. They own all of their first-rounders and four future first-round uh, picks from other teams, varying level of protection on those. But they had a bunch of assets to trade. They have young players that were appealing to the Jazz, R.J. Barrett, Quinton Grimes, Emmanuel Quickly, Obi Toppin. But ultimately, Leon Rose president over at the Knicks didn't want to give all that up for Donovan Mitchell for fear that, I mean, maybe it would be harder to acquire another big-name player to come into New York. They got Jalen Brunson this offseason from Dallas. I think that makes their roster better, but I'm not sure how much better Donovan Mitchell would have really made them. I'm not super high on Donovan Mitchell. I think he's a solid player, but he's not a top 15 player in this league. He's a good scorer, but he's a poor defender. He doesn't have great size, which would have made New York's backcourt fairly small with with, uh, Mitchell and Jalen Brunson playing there. And then that's getting rid of a lot of assets that you could potentially use on a higher caliber player in the near future. I think Donovan Mitchell is similar to a Kemba Walker in his prime. A very solid player, a player that can score, a player that can run your offense, but not someone who's really going to change the game entirely for you. I mean, He couldn't get it done in Utah. He had Rudy Gobert he's playing with. Now he's playing with Julius Randle, Mitchell Robinson down low. I mean, are those guys better than Rudy Gobert? I don't think so. So I think this was the right move for New York to not trade for him. I know that upsets New York fans, and I'm not a New York fan, so it really doesn't affect me, which maybe it's easier for me to say then. I think the problem that Knicks fans have with this is just that their team seems to be on the losing end or what they think is the losing end of a lot of these situations. Knicks fans really are just kind of tired of waiting. They want Rose to pull the trigger on one of these big deals. They want it to see that he's serious about making this team better and winning. Knicks fans are just constantly left with the consolation prize, and it's always just kind of having to hope uh, and pray that their team someday gets better. But so far, the front offense, the ownership, hasn't been doing a whole lot to show that they are serious in taking their team to the next level. Now getting Jalen Brunson, that was a step in the right direction. But you have Julius Randle, Mitchell Robinson, who are two players that are kind of handcuffing the team. I mean, you're stuck with those guys, giving them way too much money over the last couple of years. And they're not going to win you a championship. Would bringing in Donovan Mitchell win you a championship? I don't think so as well. So again, I think this is the right move for New York. But as a fan, you just want to see more. You want to see that your that your leadership is serious about winning or at least putting themselves in a position to someday soon and keyword there is soon acquire a superstar. That's going to at least get them into the playoffs and, and a a hopefully a deep playoff run. That's all Knicks fans. They just want to see something done and constantly they are uh, getting the consolation prize, which is not a good feeling. In terms of the Cavs win total for this season, I was looking at win totals the other day. It was at 42, and I didn't pull the trigger. I should have. I just, it was just a quick glance on my phone as I was in a cab and I wanted to sit down and really like think through all of this so I didn't uh I didn't pull the trigger on the Cavs 42 wins over obviously for this season they had 44 last year and now I really wish I have because this number is off the board and it's going to go up um significantly I would guess with Donovan Mitchell coming to the team but as that gets posted we'll talk about that more in detail and we'll talk about some other win totals for the season but we'll tackle that another day for now, let's move on to the WNBA Game 3 of the semifinals, both in Connecticut. The Sky travel there for the first time in this series, and the Aces travel to Seattle for the first time in the series. Both series tied at one game apiece. Start with the Chicago Sky and Connecticut Sun Sky, even the series one game 2 85, 77. so they covered that five and a half point spread. honestly the the final score, not exactly a full picture of what this game was like. Chicago controlled the game from start to finish. It was up by 20 some uh, throughout the game. But Connecticut put up 29 points in that final frame in which a lot of the Chicago starters were on the bench. They were able to score a little bit more and make this game look a little bit closer. The under also hit, but this time only by two points. Final total was 162. The closing total was 164. So starting to after that first game, which went way under, starting to move uh, a little bit closer to what the line has been set at throughout this entire series. All right. Also hit in this game. We had Chicago in the first quarter minus one. They were up by 10 at the end of the first quarter minus one and a half. I should say up by 10 at the end of the first quarter. We also had a lean on Chicago team total over 84 and a half. They finished with 85. Why do we do leans? What What's the point of a lean? What? You're just scared to pull the trigger. That's basically um, what I'm telling y'all. So I should really just trust my gut and um, just Take those actual bets next time, because that would have been a W. Ultimately, in this game, Sky just played much more physical than they did in game one. They played with a much, uh, a lot more urgency, played at a faster pace, just played more so their game, made a lot of the shots that they missed in that first game, and forced Connecticut to play their style instead of the other way around. The first uh, opening game of this series, Connecticut dominated it because they were more physical. They were more active on the boards and were able to push Chicago around in this game, two. The perimeter defense was fantastic, forced uh, Connecticut into a lot of turnovers. Courtney Vandersloot, Allie Quigley both had better games this time around. Vandersloot finished with uh, eight assists after a poor performance in the first game. Candace Parker had a great game, 22 points, four rebounds, four assists, three blocks. No surprise there. And all five starters for Chicago were in double figures. Meanwhile, for the Suns, John Quayle Jones led the way with 23 points. The next closest was Natasha Heideman with 14. So, really, Connecticut just kind of struggled to score the basketball. At one point during the game, uh, Kurt Miller, their head coach, said in a timeout, We're playing hard. It's not our effort. It's not our intensity. We just can't score. So, go out, someone go out there and make a basket. This was, however, kind of a classic Chicago Sky game. Their backs against the wall, they need a win. It wasn't an elimination game, but you don't want to go down uh, 0-2 going back on the road. So this was a must-win for Chicago, and in must-win games, elimination games that is, uh, over the course of the last 2 postseasons, Chicago's 4-0. So this was definitely Chicago's game to win. They came out, did everything they needed to do uh, to get that win. Going forward... Right now the line is set at Connecticut minus one for Sunday's Game Three matchup. The total is one sixty-three and a half, just just a little minus one thirteen to the under. And I actually kind of like the over in this game. Throughout the entire regular season, the series averaged 177 points per game. The first game of the postseason of this um, of the series, that is, I think was a major outlier. That total of one thirty one that's not going to happen again. As the series goes on, we've seen it get more and more physical. And for the most part, refs have let them play, but I think they're going to have to start calling some fouls uh, more so than they have in these first two games, just because of the physicality of these two teams. We've seen a couple technicals already in both games, So as the series goes on, it's going to get more chippier, which means more trips to the free throw line and more points with the clock stopped. So eventually the series is going to play out similar to how it has in the regular season. These teams are going to be putting up more points. And both uh, their shooting percentages went up in this second game. So it's almost as if the uh, first game of the series jitters are out of the way and these two teams are playing the way they have throughout most of this season in knocking down outside shots, getting to the rim and, and putting up bigger numbers. I also would take Chicago plus one right now. I'm going to wait to bet this until Sunday because I think it could move – a little bit more in favor of Connecticut, just because they are going back home, have home court advantage for the first time this series. Uh, right now it's just a little minus minus one fourteen 14 uh, to the sun. So I'm going to wait to bet on the sky, maybe see if I can get a one and a half two, um, And then in that case, maybe I'll even play the money line depending on what that number is at. But I think Chicago wins this second game. I think they build off of what they did or third game rather. I think they build off what they did in the second game. For whatever reason, they don't start series very well. Lost to the New York Liberty in the first round, uh, first game of that first round, and then lost the first game of this second round to Connecticut. But I think Chicago showed in this uh, last game what they're capable of doing, and that's exactly why they beat Connecticut in all four games throughout the regular season. They're the better team. When they play faster, when they get out in transition and run Connecticut can't keep up with them in that aspect because they're a team that likes to slow the game down and really grind things out. So if, if Chicago is able to dictate their pace and their style of play, I think that um, they they're going to be the ones to come out of this series. So plays for this game is the over 163 and a half and then waiting on the Chicago sky to see where this number lands closer to tip off. But right now, uh, sky plus one, I would take them uh Uh, I mean, you might as well just take the money line there at minus 103 instead of minus 109 for plus one. Game two between the Seattle Storm and the Las Vegas Aces went to the Aces 78-73. We lost our bet, though, by the hook. We had Aces minus five and a half, and they only won by five. It's a terrible way to lose a bet. I hate losing bets that way. Although, who enjoys losing bets? Let's be real. The under also hit in this game, again, by a significant margin. Not quite as much as the first game, but so far, two unders in two games in this series. If we look at how this game went, two dominant performances by each team's best player. Brianna Stewart, 12 of 23, 3 of 7 from 3 for 32 points. She had 7 rebounds, 3 assists, 3 blocks. And then Asia Wilson bounced back from a poor, only 8-point performance in that first game. 33 points in game two, 13 rebounds, three blocks. She was absolutely dominant in this performance. The Aces did things a little bit differently in the second game. They played small a lot more than they typically do. They were able to attack and get downhill. Kelsey Plum did a little bit better job of that in this game. At least that's what head coach Becky Hammond said after the game. They also got to the free throw line a lot more. They shot 12 more free throws in game two than they did in game one. Still need to knock a few more of those down. They were 18 of 23 for 78%. But what Becky Hammond did in this game is she played small ball. What killed Las Vegas in that first game is when Asia Wilson and Kaya Stokes were on the floor together because Seattle would just leave Stokes knowing that she's not a huge offensive threat and they would go help elsewhere. When the two were on the floor together in that game one, they were outscored by 11 and so in game two, Hammond made a few adjustments. The two only played 18 minutes together. And instead, when Stokes went out, Hammond put in Raquana Williams to take over. She's a 5'7 guard taking over for the center position, basically. She's not a huge offensive scoring threat, but maybe a little bit more so than Stokes would be. And so it made Seattle have to be a little bit more honest on defense. They couldn't help off as much as they would when Stokes is playing, which obviously opened up the floor a little bit more, allowed uh, driving lanes to open, and then the Aces just to get better looks on their outside shots. By putting shooting around, Asia Wilson, once again, makes the Storms' defense have to play everyone a little bit tighter. So that means Wilson's able to get loose, able to get some layups, some easy buckets. And once she saw the ball go in a few times, it was full throttle ahead for Wilson in this game. I also thought it was interesting that in playing this small lineup, I mean, you have Tina Charles that you have to guard on Seattle, who's veteran center, very physical player. You also have Branna Stewart who needs to be guarded. So they kept, Becky Hammond kept Asia Wilson on Stewart and then had Chelsea Gray on Tina Charles, which was interesting because Chelsea Gray is a guard. Let's not forget that. But she has got so much strength and power and she was able to force a ton of jump balls from Tina Charles and really just disrupt her based on her physicality and not necessarily having to rely so much on size to do so. After the game, Brandon Stewart also said that with those mismatches, that's kind of what the Storm focused on. They, they were focused too much on getting the mismatches versus just playing their offense and letting those mismatches kind of develop as the offense went around. Instead, they were hunting for those uh, while on offense, and it kind of just stalled them. They didn't get in a rhythm, weren't able to fully get into the offensive flow of the game when you're looking for those mismatches so much. So I expect the Storm to make adjustments going forward in this next game, knowing that the Aces probably will try and play small again. But right now, the line for this game is, Seattle minus one and a half. Obviously, they're back at home. I would look to take the Aces, though, plus one and a half. I think what Becky Hammond did in unlocking this small ball lineup is kind of the key to this series. And I think the Storm are going to struggle defending it going forward. I would also lean towards the under here. Total sitting at 167 right now. That's even gone up a couple points from their last game, I believe. And there's nothing in this series so far that showed me that this the over is going to hit. I mean, teams are knocking down their shots. They both had great shooting percentages, or at least decent in the Game 2. Both shot over 40%, got to the free throw line a bunch. Aces had 23 free throw attempts. So they're getting opportunities to push this game over, and it's just not going there. So until I see anything different that's going to, I think, change the trajectory of the flow of this game, I'm going to continue playing the under. So plays for Game 2. Back in Seattle on Thursday, taking the Aces and the points, plus one and a half, or if that line moves anything greater than one and a half, and then also playing the under, 167. We'll couple that with the over, 163 and a half for the Sky, and then waiting again to see where that line lands for uh, Chicago. But I think Chicago is going to win in game three. And both the favorites, the Aces and the Sky, are going to take a 2-1 series lead on the road. All right, that's all we have for today's show. We have a few guests coming next week. Going to announce those uh, over the weekend on Twitter. So give me a follow there at Kate Constable. Excited to finally get some guests going here just to differentiate the shows a little bit and bring on some new fresh perspective. I'm going to try and do that a couple times a week. So guests coming up next week. I hope you all enjoy your weekend. We will see you then.